This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week in the studio. One of our continuing series of interviews with candidates for Bloomington City Council, Maya Michelson. Maya, thanks for being on Big Talk. Mike, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. She's the Deputy Director of the Indiana Arts Commission, a resident of Bloomington. She served previously as the Assistant Director for the Arts in the city's Department of Economic and Sustainable Development. She was the art czar. Arts Arena. I preferred Arts, arts Arena. arena. Yeah. <laughs> She's running in the May 7th Democratic primary for city council in Bloomington's District 4 against longtime incumbent Dave Rollo. The general election is November 5th. This being Bloomington, the Democratic primary usually is the de facto election. What do you think about that? You bring up an excellent point, and that's that's a question that that I've been asked, which is, you know, why, you know, why run against an incumbent? You know, why why step in? And I think because in Bloomington the Democratic primary serves as a proxy for the general election, we need to have that's the time to have different perspectives yeah. and different conversations and talk about different ways to approach issues and things like that. That's when the conversation is going to happen. It it won't happen at the general election. So right. it's a time for new ideas to come forward, and, and the time to do that is in the Democratic primary. Do we need a Republican presence in this town? I'm going to say that we need a variety of viewpoints. I mean, I, I, I came in, when I started work at the city, we had um, David Sabog was on city council, Brad Whistler was on city council, both Republicans, both great guys. It was a dynamic discussion and dynamic um, council, and they did good work. So, and the council did good work. So, I think whether it's a Republican or whether it's a Democrat that that maybe has a different perspective, I think that's that's what we should be searching for, and that's what we should be shooting for. Frankly, is to have a variety of perspectives. You know the old line for restaurants or department stores: competition is good. Well, I mean, I think it certainly, I think it sharpens the arguments and, and it it gives an opportunity to hear different viewpoints. I mean, that's obviously the challenge in serving and uh, serving as an elected official is that obviously you're representing a lot of people that you may never have had a conversation with um, and don't know their viewpoints. And so being able to have uh, folks on the council that bring some different perspectives and ways of looking at things and maybe a creative approach to problem solving or challenges, opportunities, I think is really important. Um, and, and whether that's a Republican or whether that's a Democrat that may think differently than you, I'd say either are, I think, are good for the city. Maya, as I see it, your feet are firmly planted in both the ethereal world of the artist and the pragmatic nuts and bolts world of government. Yeah. You are the connector. There you go. That's a word you like. Yep, that's a that's from Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, and in the book, and I'm sure most folks listening to the show have probably read the book and other work by Malcolm. But but he talks about a connector as someone who is a person who puts other people together, a person to know, or not a person to know from a sort of a status standpoint, but just a person to know from a um, 
you know, resource standpoint or a person who can introduce you to someone else or a person that can connect you to uh, an opportunity you might be see- seeking and so forth. And I think that's that's certainly how I describe my work at the city was being a connector. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's certainly what I do at the state because, again, that's – I may not be able to solve – I may not be able to solve your problem directly, but I guarantee you're going to walk out of a encounter with me with three folks to contact, a, a set of resources that are going to meet your needs, or, again, some suggested reading and, and an opportunity to come back and talk more. So, again, I, I always made it a point when I worked with the creative, creative folks at the city was never to send someone out with, no, I can't help you. It was like, yeah, right. maybe I can't help you, but if I bring so-and-so in together, we can help you, or I know exactly who's doing this work, and they'll be able to help you. Let me put the two of you together. It's customer service. Well, I mean, that's what public service is. Yeah. It is customer service. I mean, the taxpayers are our customers, and we, and, and it's, our, um, it's our duty uh, to serve them. Your Indiana Arts Commission commissioned a study not long ago. It found that 4.3% of all Hoosier jobs are in the creative economy. That's almost one in 20 jobs. Yep. And more than 160,000 jobs in the state are associated with that creative economy. So what is the creative economy? Well, we define the creative economy in a, a, sort of through a series of audit reporting codes that help people you know, when they do their um, taxes or, or when they uh, report income, they assign different codes to work. And so there's a certain aggregate of codes that sort of represents the creative economy. It is It can be as it is obviously could be visual artists, photographers. Uh, it also uh, hand, uh, picks up people who are in creative design work and ad agencies and, and folks who work in media and so forth. So it's a fairly broad definition. But what's stunning, again, we did this this report now a couple of years ago. We did this first study a couple of years ago. And what it, it really daylighted to us how big the sector was and the fact that um, – that a lot of these folks, when you dig into the study a little bit more, you find out a lot of these folks are self-employed. Mm-hmm. They're, they're make, they've, they've made the choice to stay in Indiana, be self-employed because they want to do this work. As a result, we actually put together a new early career accelerator program for early career artists to get them on their feet so that they could uh, take advantage of, of this particularly unique economy we have here in Indiana um, called OnRamp. And so we're still sort of unspooling what what we think we can do related to taking the data from the study and making it actionable. But again, it's great to have been at the city for eight years when we talked about the creative economy and we talked about arts as as businesses, as small businesses, and to be able to take that work from the city up to the state has been really great. And so I'm constantly beating the drum that Hmm. every working artist is a small business. As small as can be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's just one person. And like me, they call me Big Mike, but I've got the smallest possible business. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So that's a that's something that we're hitting hard at the at the commission, and something we're really focused on. And again, something that that I was delighted to work on um, at the city for eight years before I moved up to the state. Now you're running. You have a very nice color coordinated internet presence. Few of them. They present your goals, one of which is keeping Bloomington special. Why and how? Well, I mean, I th- and, I, and I am totally upfront on my website. In full, full disclosure, um, when I wrote the Beat Strategic Plan in 2008, the Bloomington, Bloomington Entertainment and Arts District 
We identified some values for the district, and safeguarding, enhancing, and celebrating what is special about Bloomington was the first one mm-hmm. of those. And so I have, I have borrowed from my, I've borrowed from myself, and it made that my my first campaign value. And the reason, the reason it's important to me, when I hear people talk about issues and challenges in the community, it it almost always comes from a place of they want to make sure that Bloomington, that whatever might be happening or whatever the impact might be, that they want it to, they want to make sure it, Bloomington continues to be a special place to be. Mm-hmm. And when you talk to people about what they love about Bloomington, they say they love its uniqueness or they love its particular sense of place or they love its volunteerism or its obviously its cultural amenities and so forth. And so I think when you, when you couch it in the, couch it with folks to say, keeping Bloomington a special place, that's something people can sort of all get behind because mm-hmm. everyone sort of, I think, agrees that Bloomington is a special place. They may define what special means differently, but everyone agrees that, that Bloomington's a pretty special place and that safeguarding and celebrating it is a good thing. Are you in any way suggesting we might be in danger of losing our uniqueness? Well, I think there are some people that are concerned about that. Uh-huh. I mean, I think there are some, I mean, obviously, you? well... You know, in some ways, I am I am somewhat concerned about it. I do think that we, that if we're not careful, we're going to lose some of that. And and it's in a lot of ways, it's it's not as much physical places as the way people feel about things. You know, when I travel to other places in the state, I see really interesting innovation happening and really great things happening, and people re- being really excited about where they live and, and what's coming, you know, what's happening in their community. So I want to make sure that what we do as a city continues to, to, to build on what, what makes this a wonderful place. And wasn't Bloomington's Arts and Cultural District the first one sanctioned by the state? Very first, very first um, state-certified cultural district. Did that happen in your time? It did, and in fact, I I had actually brought the idea of a state-certified cultural district program to the State Arts Commission before I worked there to say, you know what, what we've got here in Bloomington is pretty special. Let's see if we can't put together a statewide program that recognizes Bloomington as well as other interesting places that might be in the state. And we managed to get the legislation through, and now we have the state-certified program. And now there are 10 cultural districts around the state, but Bloomington was the first and, of course, I think the best. I notice uh, Senate Bill 255 is floating around the State House. That calls for the state to spur these local arts and cultural districts. It includes uh, local tax captures where the municipality raises money to fund its own district, and if it raises more money than projected, that money goes to the state. Yeah, it's an incremental base. Yeah. So um, once, the, and again, this is entirely for each municipality to enact should they want to. Those that have um, state certified cultural districts, and um, incremental tax that's captured, and it's um, it can be local income tax or sales tax or both. That incremental money goes to the arts commission and is granted back out into the community um, for arts and cultural investments. And what's great about this tool is that. It can be utilized not just for nonprofit arts and cultural development, but for for-profit arts and cultural development. So, and that those are tools that that communities don't have, and and the legislature continues to sort of tie municipalities' hands and how they can use their um, incentive programs. And so, this is a this is one that is tailor-made to arts and culture. How do we in Bloomington raise money for our arts and cultural district? 
it would be the it would be the city council would um, establish the geographic boundaries and decide which tax which which in, incremental tax they'd want to capture, whether it was sales tax or income tax or both, and then. Again, the base is set, and then incremental tax is then collected and returned back to the community. First, it's got to pass, um, and then city council would have to enact it. Yeah, and, and in other states, there are cultural district programs that have abilities to, to uh, capture tax in a variety of ways or have tax incentives they can provide inve- for investment in those districts, and Indiana is lagging behind. Another one of your goals, uh, should you beat the incumbent, supporting economic and urban mobility. Now, as everybody knows, I'm a big fan of first questions, so let's get right to it. What does economic and urban mobility mean? Well, economic mobility means the ability to to improve one's economic situation. So that means a better job, better place to live, ability to save for emergencies and so forth. And then urban mobility means the ability to get around in an urban setting. So are we able to in Bloomington? It depends. I think, well, I think transit lacks, um, I hear a lot that transit doesn't work for commuters. Obviously, it doesn't run on Sundays. Again, it doesn't work well for people who, who have to be places early. And some stops, as we know, might only pick up once an hour. So I think there's, I think there's an opportunity to, to make if we want to create better multimodal opportunities for people, then we're going to transit. We're, we're going to have to look at transit. We're going to have to look at transit hard. Um, and the city's going to have city. You know, obviously, transit is is its own entity. Um, the city approves its budget, but it doesn't. You know, it doesn't put skin in the game. And so, I think we're going to have to look at ways for the city to put skin in the game there with transit to help bring to to meet some of those shortcomings. That first came from a hunch, but then I sat down with someone who moved here recently from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and, and lives downtown and was uh, confirmed my sense was that transit is not, because she doesn't have a car, um, that transit does not help her get around in the way that she um, had experienced in other um, communities, Ann Arbor being the most recent. That would include the grocery store. Right, yes, absolutely. The whole shot. And, you know, I, I mean... It, I mean, there's a lot of conversation now related to bike paths, and my husband's a, a biking commuter, and yeah, and so he bemoans the state of the safety of a bike commuting um, in in some areas. So I think obviously we have a lot of work to do there related to making biking safer. And again, studies show when biking safer, more people are going to bike. And so we've got to work on that. Speaking of getting around, what are you thinking about all these scooters around town? They are, they are, as we have heard so many times, they are a disruptive mode of transportation. I think they have some utility. I know they have some utility. There's no question. In fact, my son, who's a freshman at IU, uses a scooter to get from one side of campus to the other when he's only got 15 minutes between classes. So he thinks it's good, but obviously the rollout and how it all has been managed, I think, has been has has made the embrace of scooters challenging at this point. And so I think I think there's work ahead. And it's going to be interesting to see when when spring has fully sprung right. and the scooters are back out like the daffodils. If, if it's going to be quite the same, if we're going to have quite the same issues and challenges that we did when they first rolled out, or if all of a sudden we have fewer scooters or what's happening. I, I Just to geek out for a minute, 
I read an article in a journal not too long ago about, you know, that this is, scooters are just the beginning. There was a, a convention, a conference in San Francisco of, of folks who were putting together all sorts of other possible disruptive types of mobility devices like unicycles and... And power roller skates and... Yeah, all kinds of things. So I think, in all seriousness, I think scooters are just the beginning. And we're a college town, and those sorts of things are going to come to us because we're a college town. You know, these things are in Indy as well. Yes, oh yes, oh yes. In fact, you know, I work in Indianapolis, so I... So have you ridden one? I have, I have ridden, yes, I have ridden a bird. I have ridden a bird. I have ridden a bird. Actually, I rode it around... I wrote it around my neighborhood because I thought I need to see what this is, this what this is like. Um, and I will say it was, it was uh, a little fun and a lot scary. Oh, so yeah. and <laughs> I don't know that I'll, I'll be birding and liming much. But yeah, I mean I think that's and, and again you look nationally that and, and communities all over are are grappling with the with what this kind of disruptive transportation does. But I think as a city we've. We, we've kind of got a handle on it, but we've got to do more. And certainly when I, when I talk to constituents, especially those folks who are in the downtown and campus area, I hear a lot of comments and complaints about the scooters and how, they're, how they've sort of rolled out, as it were. Goal number three for you when you hope to become a city council member, practicing engagement and transparency. Everybody says that. I know. So why are you different? I know. Why am I different? Well, let's start with engagement. Again, I've worked in um, public service for the last 11 plus years, eight at the city, three plus at the state, to do our work well, especially at the state level, but certainly when I was at the city, you have to engage with people. I mean, you have to have focus groups and, and meetings with constituents. You have to be engaged, and you have to put together large groups of folks and, and talk to them about what they, what they, you know, get their ideas, bounce possible programmatic uh, approaches off of them and so forth. I mean, you have to be engaged. And engagement, and this actually is, is, a, is a big focus for the Arts Commission, community engagement. It's a major, um, it's in our strategic plan, and, and it's sort of flowing through everything we're doing right now. And so I like to think about engagement as a two-way transformative process. It's not just me, you know, talking to you um, and you changing what you think based on what I've told you, but it's us engaging together and me changing based on the engagement that we've had. So it's trans it's a transformative two way two way experience. And so that's that's how I look at engagement. Again, I'm comfortable with sitting down with folks because again, when you when you're working on a, when you're working for a statewide agency, you have six million constituents. Mm-hmm. You're you're not you will only ever directly encounter a, a small group of them. Yeah. So you've got to find lots of ways to engage with them, whether it's one-on-one, whether it's town halls. We do a lot with online, virtual conferencing, virtual town halls, things like that. We use a lot of different types of technology to engage with people because we need to make sure all voices are heard. And so it, it it's going to mean, again, the usual face-to-face focus groups, constituent meetings, and things like that. But it's also going to be um, utilizing and leveraging technology so that you can uh, expand your ability to converse with, with people. So what about going out and having meetings with people on a regular basis? Absolutely, yeah. In, in, in various locations. I would, you know, I'd hold up Isabel Piedmont-Smith, 
who does monthly constituent meetings. Uh-huh. That would absolutely be something I would do because I think that's absolutely critical, and I think she does a good job of that. So, How are you going to find time to do that? You've got a full-time job. You have to commute from Bloomington to Indianapolis and back. Are you ever going to sleep? <laughs> well, I'm happy to say that my last big project is a freshman at IU. So uh, I've, got a, I've got a little time. And what's nice uh, is that I do have the ability to to flex time. I have the ability to um, work in Bloomington, and I know you and I have seen each other from time to time at our favorite coffee place mm-hmm. when I'm working uh, in town. So the time, I, the time I can manage, absolutely. And again, I understand what public service means. You're going to be on call 24 hours a day. And, and I will tell you that that, that, was one of the, that was one of the biggest surprises for me in working for the city was the fact that I really was expected to be on call 24 mm-hmm. hours a day. And I adjusted. It was a surprise. I wasn't expecting it. But, but actually, I liked it. I, I liked knowing what was going on and being able to solve problems and address needs and, and do things and, and not – there was something nice about having dealt with it on Friday night so that when you got there Monday, it had already been taken care of. One of the things you've called for is, quote, innovation to flow outward and upward. Now let's go back to first questions. What does that mean? What that means is is that um, we need to make sure that the folks who are on the ground doing the work, city employees, commission, our, our representatives of our boards and commissions, their ideas and their planning and work, make sure that work goes up. In other words, make sure they're being consulted and they have an opportunity to provide input on what the city's goals and priorities are. Um, And I think that happens in some cases, but I don't think it happens as much as it should. Now we know all about what you do as a city council person. Let's find out who is Maya Michelson. I was born in El Dorado, Arkansas. Mm. Yeah, 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 which is down in the southern part of the state. My father was, uh, at the time, worked at a television station, and my mother was a homemaker. Then we, we weren't in El Dorado too much longer. We, then I think we moved um, for a brief time to Shreveport, Louisiana, Shreveport. And then uh, we moved to North Little Rock, which is across the river from Little Rock, mm-hmm. uh, which is where, essentially, I grew up. As a kid, were you interested in the arts or more interested in politics and civics? You know what? I was interested in the arts and actually was in theater in high school and, and for in, speech forensics, as they say. I think that's what they still call it. Um, I call it speechifying now. And then I graduated from college with a degree in theater mm-hmm. and then thought I was going to go on to a career as an actor and uh, met my husband when we were both in a production of uh, Agatha Christie's very first play, and not her best, um, Black Coffee at the Arkansas Repertory Theater. Hmm. And then um, we sort of chased each other around the country uh, for a couple of years and then got married. And, and Who chased whom? <laughs> well, we, he chased me for a while, and I chased him for a while, and then we just, you know, we kind of just so, went running. I was in graduate school, and he was a working actor, so he was on tour, and he uh, was, you know, so it was a little like, hey, can you come and see me? I'm going to be in, you know, so-and-so. So it was a little of that for a little while, and then, um, yeah. So what was your first job out of college? Oh, my gosh. My first job out of college was at a television station, associate producer of the 5, 6, and 10 o'clock news. Yeah, yeah. I was the associate producer. I was the person that ran the teleprompter. How did you end up in Bloomington? My husband, after acting for a while, went into 
to um, academics, a theater, and the chair opportunity here at, at IU came up. And I knew a little bit about Bloomington. I, I Literally what I knew was, this. I don't know what this says about me, but, but I knew Kinsey, and I knew Dave Baker, and I knew Bobby Knight. Those were the three names that I that I ah the Holy Trinity of Bloomington and Indiana University. I knew, yeah. So, so I th- said, well, you know, maybe we should check this out. And they brought me up with him for the second interview. I took a car. He'd he'd gone off to do some other interviewing, and I think it. I'm pretty sure it was Rogers Benford Elementary School. But I hit Rogers Benford Elementary School just when school was getting out, oh. and. There were kids on bicycles. Yeah, yeah. There were kids walking. When I saw kids on bikes and kids walking, and I thought, "Oh my, this is this looks pretty amazing." And we had a ten-year-old and a four-year-old at the time, and I thought, you know, this would might be the kind of place that would be pretty great to to raise a couple of kids. And so, as silly as it sounds, that was. I mean, the the, the most the mobility of Bloomington is what, you know, is, is, is one of the things that spoke to me most viscerally was this is a place where a kid can get on a bike and ride home or a kid can get on a sidewalk and walk home. And it's a place that encourages that. That really spoke to me. At some point, you were the gallery director for the Waldron Center? That was my first job. Sally Gaskell, who was um, executive director of the um, Bloomington Area Arts Council, that would have been 2004. Four. Okay. 2004, September 2004, actually. I, I started at, as gallery director and was here for a year as gallery director. And then when Sally stepped down, I was executive director of, of the Bloomington Area Arts Council, which ran the which ran the Waldron at the time. And so, yeah, so I, you know, know WFHB well and, and Will Murphy and Chad and other GMs. And in fact, when I was at the city, some of your folks may remember, you know, the Bloomington Area Arts Council folded, and there was some concern about what was going to happen to this building, and in particular, what was going to happen to WFHB, because it was, this is its home. And so, you know, the city took the extraordinary step of stepping in and assuming ownership of the building for, you know, I think it was three months, um, while um, we worked out a partnership um, with Ivy Tech Community College to take it on. And I was he- that because, you know, arts were my beat. I was here. I I came over at eight o'clock in the morning and left at 10 o'clock at night. Wow. Because we need because the building needed to stay open because yeah. there because there were because sh- Cardinal Stage had shows and there were exhibit schedules and there were classes happening. So we needed the city owned the building, but we needed to staff it. And so me with a combination of a couple of other folks kept the building open from you know sun up to sundown to keep things going because we didn't want to close it and we didn't want to push people out on the sidewalk so you know it's those sorts of things you know how you manage the the sudden shock to the system i think is is i think a trait of of someone who's a good connector and collaborator and problem solver and thinker because again it was it was absolutely essential to me and to a lot of people that we figure out how to keep this building open and going. She's the deputy director of the Indiana Arts Commission. You may remember her as Bloomington's Arts Tsarina before that. She's running for the city council district four seat held by longtime incumbent Dave Rollo. Maya Michelson, thanks for being on Big Talk. 
Thank you, Mike. It was a blast.